The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. turn our attention this morning to the beginning of Luke chapter 14. Last week as we finished chapter 13, we noticed a change in tone within the teaching of Jesus. What we had seen over the previous number of sections had been difficult, hard, confrontational in, in nature. Several ways Jesus had brought to us difficulty, hard things to hear, but then we saw a change in, in tone to sorrow. The hard was there in different ways as he taught about the coming judgment, the need to repent. He taught about a single narrow door, only one way, and it's a narrow one, only one way leads into the kingdom feast of, of God. That's hard. And it was mixed with hope as the character of God was repeatedly interjected. In, in all those places, we saw the character of God, his, his patient mercy and his powerful compassion. We saw him like that again and again. So that, that was there too. There's, there's firm, there's stern, there's, there's hard, and there's mixed with hope. And then all of that gave away last week to a sigh. <sighs> as if Jesus, this is last week's passage, as if Jesus knows that most people won't listen to him. He sorrowed over hard-heartedness and its consequences. Jesus laments then over the listening but ignoring crowds, those who will be forsaken by God as they forsake him. Here he is calling out, but people will not listen and in fact will soon reject him entirely and condemn him to the cross. And he knows that and is sorrowed by it. That is his analysis of people in general. And then also there's a note struck. We talked about this towards the end last week. There's a note struck particularly about the leadership. He talks about Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather your children. There's a distinction there between Jerusalem, the, kind of the, those in the seat of authority, and the children, the common people. So there's a note there of distinction and then kind of, of, of warning about the, the, the misleading and the, the the blocking, the negative influence of leadership. But that kind of comment on resistant leadership is what carries into the passage today. Chapter 14, hard-hearted leadership. We're going to see that in them, and then in that, of course, there's a lesson for the common people, for us. What we have before us is something that will look similar in some ways. There's another Sabbath healing, and it's you know, in my Bible, it's, it's on the same page, in fact, the last Sabbath healing from the previous column in chapter 13. So there's some similarity here. So stuff we've seen before, which was there before even chapter 13. It's been in Luke before. So again and again and again, why the same stuff? Why the same material? Well, it's not for the sake of of answering the first question that Jesus actually asks, as we'll see when we read it eventually. He's going to ask, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? That question's already been answered. 
he's asking it actually rhetorically here. Yes, it's lawful. We, we, as we've tracked through, we know it is lawful. It's, it's perfectly in line with what God intended the Sabbath to be about. God intended the Sabbath to be about people resting with God and about people doing good and people being restored and, and healed and made whole. So it's entirely appropriate. And his second question reveals that everybody knows that. You rush to pull out your son or an animal that's fallen into a well on the Sabbath. You don't wait till the next day. Everybody knows that. So we're not here looking at another Sabbath healing to answer the question about what's permissible on the Sabbath. There's some other purpose here. Seen in the reaction of something happening yet again. We've seen this before, seen it before, seen it before. The people in the text have seen it before, seen it before, seen it before. Are they going to get it yet? Are we going to get it yet? And as we see, no, they do not yet read the signs properly. In that, there's a lesson for us. That's what we're going to be looking at, kind of focusing on the reaction. I'm going to do that in two observations, one from the first paragraph, verses 1 to 6, and one from the second. I'm going to, I think there's a linkage here, and I'm going to develop that in the, the second point of 7 through 11. But let me read the whole passage. This is Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 11, and then I'll make two observations from the passage. One Sabbath... When he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. But he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the place of honor lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's our passage this morning. There's the first observation drawn primarily from the first paragraph. This Jesus is the Lord who gives life. Beware the human tendency to resist him. This Jesus is the Lord who gives life. And beware the human tendency to resist him. We begin by taking care, not skipping over, but by taking care to see something familiar. The good authority, the good, gracious, compassionate power of Jesus giving life. 
it would be very easy to overlook this because we've been tracking through the book. This has come up a lot, very frequently. We've seen this in lots of places, even in lots of similar contexts. It would be easy to skip on right by, right by it, but here is Jesus displaying for us the lordship that is rightfully his and its lordship for a purpose. And in fact, the fact that we've seen this again and again and again and again and again through the book kind of is itself, that's who he is consistently. He's the one who has rightful lordship and exercises it in this way with compassion and power to redeem and restore. Here's a man present suffering from dropsy, which was an affliction they didn't really understand back then. Its, it's symptoms would, would involve swelling of tissue, so lots of limbs would be very swollen. There's an underlying disease behind that that they didn't understand, but they could see swelling and, and painful and debilitating. And here's a man suffering from that. And middle of verse 4, Jesus took him and healed him and sent him away. He took him. More than just touched him. In some way, he, he grabbed him, maybe around the shoulders, maybe he hugged him. The point is, there's physical contact. There's an embracing, a drawing near of this man, and he healed him. Jesus wants us to see in that embrace something about connection, something about care and power as he changes this man's reality. He heals him from his affliction and then sends him away. There's power involved coming from Jesus clearly, restoring the broken. He's personally and intimately concerned. An aspect of Jesus is compassionate power that's further developed when we look down at verse 5. Now, Jesus asks verse 5, his main point is to expose the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. They know full well that they would pull out their son quickly out of the well, that they would pull out their ox quickly out of the well, but they don't care about this guy. They do not care about this guy. And Jesus does. Jesus draws the parallel. Just like naturally, just like I care about People and animals falling into wells, I care about this one. There's, he's drawing the point. He's confronting their hypocrisy, their uncaring attitudes. But in that we see he has a caring. He, he wants to embrace this rather than throw it away, rather than use it as an illustration, rather than use it as a, a way to convict somebody else. He cares about this man and in power heals him. So here is the good, kind authority of God at work here in and through Jesus. Which all through the book of Luke, here included, is trying to show us something about the nature of the king and the nature of the kingdom and the fact that the kingdom is coming in this one. It's designed to draw all of our attention onto Jesus and say, there's the power of God, and it is a good power. There's the power of God at work in Jesus, and to zero us in on him. To teach us, here's the king and the kingdom, and it is a king and a kingdom of goodness, of, of restoration, and it has dawned. It's here to draw us to it, to make us trust it, to embrace it, and to see, here's the king who gives life, who cares about suffering people and has come to redeem them and restore them. This is Jesus, and he is the Lord. This is Jesus he is the one in whom God is at work. This is Jesus. He is the one in whom the kingdom comes. Don't miss that. 
That's preliminary. But we have to start there, and don't miss that. I mean, maybe you're here for the first time, and, and you haven't seen that passage after passage after passage. Don't miss that. Sometimes we have this impression that Jesus is some sort of, of massive killjoy. He's going to ruin my day if I turn to him. This is the Jesus that when hurting people come to him, he restores them. So don't miss that. But if you've been seeing this chapter after chapter, don't miss it either. Pause here for a second. The king draws near someone, embraces him to restore him. That would be you. That would be your spot. The afflicted one. And the king says, I'm the kind of king. I don't sit on high and declare and dictate. I draw near people who are afflicted to restore them. That would be you. Don't miss that. The don't miss that is actually the unique point here. These guys totally miss that. That's what's unique about this passage. Beware the human tendency to resist him. This is the king who would give life. Beware the human tendency to resist him. What shows up in this passage, what's unique about it, is the resistance. This is different than what is in the previous column in my Bible back in chapter 13. It is, it is similar. We've got religious leader. We've got afflicted person. We've got Jesus healing on the Sabbath. But the difference is that this setting is more of a setup. He's not randomly teaching in a synagogue when a person happens along. He's been invited to a Pharisee, a leading Pharisee's house. Verse 1 says it's a ruler of the Pharisees. We don't know who he is or exactly what his position was, but he's somebody high up. And he has invited over other Pharisees and lawyers. Those people are, are experts in the law of Moses. He's invited them all over, and verse 1 says they were watching him carefully, which is a nice way to put it. They were watching, they were looking, they were examining with bad motive. That's the clear meaning of this word. They are, they are watching him. You know, it's kind of like the person who was dialed 9-1 and is looking out the window. There's a motive there. I'm just waiting to punch the last number. That's what's going on here. They are enacting what was said about them at the end of chapter 11. The Pharisees were pressing him to provoke him, lying in wait to catch him in some difficult position like this one, verse 2, because what do you know? Behold, there's a man present at this meal on the Sabbath who needs healing. Why did the ruler, the Pharisees, invite over all of his Pharisee and lawyer friends and Jesus on the Sabbath? Because he also invited over a guy who has dropsy. This is bait. How did that guy get there? Well, it is, I must acknowledge, it is just possible that he wandered in. Sometimes that happened. But the text would have us think, Otherwise, 
They are watching him carefully, and behold, look who's here. And verse 3, Jesus responded. Responded? Nobody said anything yet. Oh, yeah, they did. Jesus knows when he speaks up first that he's already in a conversation. He sees what's going on here. He sees them all sitting there, 9-1, watching. And he sees that guy sitting there, and he sees everybody looking at him. Got a question for you guys. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Yes or no? I want an answer. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? He presses them, tell me. They know the answer. They know it is, it is permissible to do compassionate work on the Sabbath. Verse 5, they know they would haul their son and their ox out of the well. They, for sure they know that. But if they say yes, it's going to undercut their whole case against him. And if they say no, then everybody's going to wonder what's going on here. Why are you opposing him when he heals people on the Sabbath? And why did you, you bring this guy along as a human prop? So no comment is their answer. They remain silent. I want an answer, yes or no. They're still watching. And so he heals him. He embraces him and draws him near. And he exposes the hypocrisy with the, with the further question, which of you would leave his son or ox in a well on the Sabbath and tell him just hang out till tomorrow? Wouldn't you rush to immediately pull him out? Of course. They have an answer to that too, but silence. What, what's going on here? Obstinate resistance. Bait. We're going to lay out a trap and see if he will do what only the power of God can do so that we can convict him of being ungodly and an enemy of God. How many times... Jesus is healed, Jesus is healed, Jesus is healed, Jesus is healed. Who restores people to wholeness and generates from them praise for God? Satan or, or God? God. How many times Jesus cast out demons and healed, cast out demons and healed, cast out demons and healed? Who casts out demons? Is Satan's household divided or not? No, God does that. We know that. That's why we're going to get you. That makes no sense. They totally miss it. Obstinate, resistant. Never mind the questions. We're not talking about facts or truth here. Is he going to do it so we can convict him and kill him? That is pure, unadulterated, biased resistance. And it is common to the heart of man. Human condition is marked by persistent, irrational resistance to Jesus the Lord because the human heart does not want to submit to Jesus the Lord. That's the truth about us. They have no answers to his questions because they are not interested in answering any questions. They're not interested in finding out the truth. They know what they want. And they're going to act to get it. Irrational though it is. It is bias, it is prejudice, it is ugly, and it is in all of us because it is common to the human condition.
beware of this resistance to Jesus. Maybe it shows up in your life in the simple fact that you're not a Christian. And there's no good reason not to be. Think about that. There's no good reason not to be. There's every reason to be. An old philosopher called Blaise Pascal, and he, he's famous for writing down this thing that's been called Pascal's Wager. And in shorthand, layman's terms, he talks about how if, if I've got the possibility to be in God and the possibility to not be in God, and the possibility of if there's God, then, then through Jesus there's eternal life, and if there isn't, then none, but none of it matters. But here would be a good and ethical life with, with reward, and here would be a good and ethical life with no eternal reward. I should, I should choose God. And here's the thing, I, I'd heard that tons growing up, and I never understood this until five, six, seven years ago. And I realized how Pascal actually used that little, if there is no God, then there's no harm in actually living like the Bible teaches. It's actually positive for you. I didn't understand how Pascal actually used that then he went one step further and said, so why don't you? It makes all the sense in the world, too. So why don't you? Pascal used that to expose, because I don't want that to be true. There's no good reason not to go that way other than because I don't want to. Folks, that is bias. That is prejudice of the same scale that these guys are going through. People reject the Lord Jesus and have never examined him. People reject the Lord Jesus and have never read the Bible, which all the evidence says is completely trustworthy. People reject the Lord Jesus and have never considered if the tomb was empty and hundreds of people saw him alive and gave their lives on that assertion, I have seen him alive, Not, which is totally different than I believe a different theory. I have seen a dead man alive again is totally different than theory. People reject Jesus and never think about any of that. They just reject Jesus because I don't want him. Ask yourself, is that you? Because here is the king who would give life. That would be you, the one drawn near and restored and renewed. That would be you. Are you rejecting it? Because, frankly, no, I don't want it. I have a feeling, I have a sense that if I were to do that, if I were to go that way, it would involve some change in me, and I don't think I want that. It would maybe involve some ostracism from some people around me, maybe involve some, some ridicule, some change in life. And No, 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 no. I like being in charge of my own life. Thank you. Think about that. Think about that. Here's a king who offers life, and also then on the back end of that says, but there is such a thing as death. It's not life or, it's life or death. This is an eternal question of, of immense magnitude. And here is one who offers, who now stands ready to receive you if you would come. Think about that, please, for your own good. 
it, is, it feels so very natural to resist him. It feels so very natural to stand aside and, and evaluate it coolly and coldly, to, to lord over the Lord. It feels so very natural, but it, it is deadly and deceptive. Maybe this natural human resistance shows up in your life like that. But I know that for most of us here, I know most people in the room here, we, we already are Christians. And we're humans. So it's in us too. We, we are human alike here. Christians, for sure you're a Christian. This is also for sure you're not yet in heaven means you are still plagued with the flesh and indwelt by God's spirit, but in process. Underway, not yet there. Which means the flesh still pulls you. It still pulls your heart persistently, irrationally. It's true for Christians. You know the experience still now as a Christian, of, of holding Jesus at arm's length. He's given you every reason to embrace him. More than these Pharisees. The Pharisees gather here, I mean, the whole setup is predicated on the fact that they know he has healed people before. They've seen him heal people. Miraculously. We've seen more than that. You've seen something. If you're a Christian, you've seen far more than those guys saw because you've seen with more than your spiritual eyes. You have, you have seen a new life. You've experienced it. You're forgiven. You have, you have Christ's spirit lives in you and you see all things new. The, the fog's been lifted to a great degree and you understand the world. You know what's true. You've experienced the lifting of the weight of guilt. You've experienced new life. You've, you've experienced far more than they ever did. He's given you every reason to trust him. And yet, and yet, sometimes we refuse to seek him even and avoid spending time with him even. The Bible and prayer and fellowship with other Christians to talk about and meditate on Christ We'd just rather not. Maybe because you'd sense that in some way you'd have to change. Draw away from the worldliness that is gripping you. Now, I'm not talking about drawing away from everything in the world. God has given us much to be enjoyed in the world. But some of us, we, we know that we're more than just in the world. We are more of the world. And you sense that if I were to draw near to God, there'd be something that would be poking at me and, and calling for change there. And, ah, you know, I'd rather not. Maybe because you're hiding something clearly sinful and, and dark, but maybe not that. Maybe it's just something that's good has gotten too much of a hold on me and I have to give it up and I don't want to. Resistance. Maybe you simply fear what that kind of surrender would look like. You're not holding on to anything specific, but a yielded heart feels vulnerable and, and you don't want to go there. 
You'd rather stay in control of things. You know how you'd like life to work, and you've done a decent job of creating a godly version of the American lifestyle. Safe and independent and private and comfortable. You've got it all kind of ordered, and you don't want it ordered a different way. And letting go of all that, any talk of putting all of that on the table, laying down your life, no. No. That feels natural. It has been... It's been in us since the garden. It is persistent. It's, it's irrational. Here's the one who said, I give you life, and you've actually tasted that. You know what, you know what that feels like. You know what that looks like. It's, it's completely irrational that the one who died for you and rose from the tomb to give you life and has already given you a great taste of it would then turn around to rip you off in some way. There's no, there's no rationality to that. But it feels very natural to kind of say, I've got... I've got my life here, and I don't want to put that on the table because I don't know what will come next. There's resistance there. Or maybe, really, you're a bit angry with God because he hasn't given you that godly American lifestyle that you'd like, and he has not enabled you to put it all in order in a way that pleases you. You know the theology, and you are indeed a Christian. You believe, but that's the rub. You can't deny this. So you're stuck kind of in this, I know you are the Lord, but what I have experienced under the lordship of Jesus in my life, I do not want. My job, I do not like. My family, I do not like. The path my children have chosen, I do not like. What my parents' marriage and it falling apart, I do not like that. That is wrong, and, and there's resistance. There. There's, a, there's kind of a, if you're honest, a, a bit of bitterness resides in you. A persistent kind of arm's length. I cannot walk away. I know too much, I've seen too much. I am a, I am a, a redeemed believer. But Christian, this lives in the human condition. It lives in us. It is irrational, given all that God is for us in Christ. But it is there. Beware of it. And maybe it's not there in any of the ones I just touched on. I'm just thinking about myself. That's how I work. Maybe you work in, in some different ways. But it's there. Your own particular version, perhaps, of, of Christian unbelief. Are you a believer? Yes. But at the same time, we have to, in back-to-back -back breaths, say like that man did, I'm, I I'm a believer, I believe, but help my unbelief. Because this is, this is real. Maybe not every day, but, it, but it's there. We resist the kingdom lordship of Jesus persistently, irrationally, because this is the king who would give life. That drawing near and renewing and restoring, that would be you. 
so here we are, stuck at this place of, God, help me. God, help me. And I think the next paragraph, I think, points us in the direction of help. He's the king who gives life. Beware the, the very natural, the natural feeling, tendency to resist him. I think the next paragraph points us in the direction that when God would help us, he would help us in this way. And it's kind of a bit of an indirect. You might think resistance, stop resisting. Unbelief, believe. There's another, I think it's a little bit indirect that gets us around to, to help. So let me try to show this. Here's the second point. Humility is required to see the Lord and be lifted up to enjoy the life he gives. Humility is required to see the Lord and be lifted up to enjoy the life he gives. To work towards that. The second paragraph may appear disconnected. But I think there's a connection here. The setting is apparently the same. Still the same meal. And Jesus is now initiating something after what he's been watching. People have come in and they have chosen the seats of honor. Every culture, this one's no exception, has ways of it at every kind of a feast or meal, ways of identifying these are the good seats and these are the bad seats. And if you go to a, a wedding reception where they did not assign seats, you would know the good seats, the ones where the family and the close friends sit are up near the head table somewhere, and the bad seats are back behind the pillar where you can't see. And then he tells a story along these lines. It's very easy to follow. You can imagine the humiliation as the whole seated room watches you quietly approached by an usher you whisper it in your ear, and you pick up your purse, and you walk back to sit behind the pillar where you can't see. And then somebody else is brought in and seated at your former seat. You can easily imagine the humiliation of that and the recognition of, oh, that person actually does know the host. Good friend, family maybe. Easy to imagine that. Better to be one of the ones brought forward and honored like that than to be one awkwardly displaced to the rear. For, verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. The one who on his own accord takes the good seat, he's exalting himself, opposite of humbling himself, walking in pride. The other one who takes the lowly place, walking in humility, humbles himself and then is exalted. So Jesus tells this little story here to expose pride, self-exaltation, and to commend humility in the room. Why? Well, not just for reasons of social etiquette. We shouldn't think of him as having primary concern for politeness or, or social interaction. It can be applied that way, and we should note that because I think what he's really getting at, which we'll come to in a minute, if that were to come and take hold in us, it would be applied 
in social settings like this. And so we, we can't skip over that. It's not less than that. It's more than, but not less than. So don't overlook the fact that pride and humility does come out in life, and pride is negative and destructive. This is not news, but stop and think about it. Ironically, pride makes it hard for the proud to actually enjoy life. It leads to situations of, of shame. And often, you li you're lifted up, you're lifted up, you're lifted up. And then the knees are cut out and you're dropped down and you're humiliated. And you can't ever actually enjoy, even before the knees get cut off, you can't ever actually enjoy what is because the self-exalting person is living off of self being exalted. So you've got to claw your way to the top and you've got to rush in there quickly to get the seat in front because that's how you are significant. The stress and pressure of that and the fact that it's off-putting when people realize that you don't care about them, just about you. Maybe not chest-thumping proud, but nonetheless self-focused, self-concerned, self-exalting, not being humble and willingly beneath others to love them and do them good. This is, this is no kind of life. It's no way to live in the world. This is true. But this is not the point. Jesus tells us for another reason. Consider the context here. Why is this here, in this spot, after verses 1 to 6? And why does Jesus mention a wedding feast? They're not at a wedding. This isn't a wedding. It's just a meal. Because, his point being pride and humility, because it's pride that is behind the obstinate, persistent, irrational human resistance to the Lord. The real issue on the table is not self-exaltation over others in the choosing of seats at a wedding feast. It is self-exaltation, an attitude before Jesus and what that means for seats at the real wedding feast. First paragraph was full of men, including the host Pharisee himself and all his friends, gathered in front because they loved the places of honor. Loved to be seen as important. These men all exalt themselves above Jesus. Above the people in the room, yes, but the problem is above Jesus. They're sitting there watching from a position of, I know what I want and I know how to get it. I'm in charge of the situation here. We are all looking to judge that one, the Lord. The irony of it. They resist him and they sit in judgment on him. And Jesus warns then, he who exalts himself will be humbled, will be shamed by God on that day at the wedding feast. What's required then? Humility. There can be no proper seeing, no proper experiencing of or closing with God, no full experience 
of the life that Jesus means to give in the kingdom, and I mean this for both those who are still not Christians, you cannot come into the kingdom and experience the life. And for us who are Christians, day by day by day, we cannot experience the fullness of the kingdom today. Apart from humble yourself, walk in humility. If you want God to lift you up in due time to exalt you, to bring you into the fullness of life, the path to that is the path of lowliness, the path of humility. To humble oneself. I'm going to talk about this in two ways, because first, to humble oneself, there is an exhortation here. Everyone who exalts himself or humbles himself, there's an exhortation here too to us about what we do, but a little precursor, I'm going to come around to the fact that apart from God, that's not possible. But what we do, humble oneself, it's a choice of mindset, a choice of attitude first, before actions. It's about mindset first, put oneself in a frame of mind First, in relation to God, who is the Lord? He is the Almighty, the High and Holy One. Second, who am I in relation to Him? To know this, to know who He is and who am I in relation to Him, it is the beginning of wisdom. He is the Lord and I am not. I, you, each of us, we are simply creatures. Nothing more. We are creatures made by the free choice of God. He did not need you. He is God. He has no need. He does not owe you anything. He is God. Who holds him in debt? Who says to him, you should, you must? You are a creature made of clay, and he is a free potter doing whatever he pleases with his creation. You have life because he breathed it into you. We have value indeed great value but only because God declared it so that's from him too we are glorious creations marred yes full of marvelous capabilities but we are not powerful and we are not independent we are flowers quickly fading We are creatures made and sustained and ordered and one day brought to an end by God. We are creatures. And during the brief time that we are here, remarkably, we have rebelled against him and we bear in ourselves the mark of that rebellion. It's penalty. We are full of decay and weakness. We are in ourselves, apart from decay and weakness, we are finite. And then we are decayed and weak. We are forgetful and failing. We are sick and expiring. We have no ground to stand on that is not itself moving and passing away. 
This should not be heard as morose. Just truth. It's just truth. We are wonderful marvels made in God's image, born dying. We just aren't that big of a deal. We just don't know very much. We can't do very much. And what we do know and what we can do, we must be clear about this. All of our wisdom and all of our understanding and all of our power and strength and creativity, though it is not very great, it is a gift from God. Given to be used and enjoyed, yes, but given. Given to us by the one who gives good gifts. They are good gifts. And he gives strength to gain them and to sharpen them, to refine them and to employ them, to enjoy them. He gives strength and health, health and desire and he gives opportunity and safety and food and shelter and rain and sun. What do you have that you did not receive from him? The answer is nothing. Every single thing that I have I receive as a gift. So, humble yourself. The whole problem with self-exaltation in relation to Jesus is that we don't actually believe what I just was talking about. Instinctively, intrinsically, we believe I am something. And I should have. No, I'm not. No, I shouldn't. So humble yourself. Walk the path of humility. An exhortation here, so it's something that we have to do. We should embrace humility by reminding ourselves of truths like these in order to see who you are in relation to God upon whom your every second depends. And then, of course, in relation to others who are just in the very same boat that we are in. To consider it in relation to the Lord is the most important thing, is what the Pharisees are missing. And this is how it gets around to resistance, because what lies behind resistance is, in fact, self-exaltation. So if we want to attack resistance, we attack pride. Or, in fact, oppositely, feed humility. And there's a difference between Outward and knowing what should be, and inward, having that be what is. The outward and knowing what should be, that, that's important. We, we shouldn't dismiss that or poo-poo it or something, because that's, that's what makes societies work. Gracious behavior and speech. That's appropriate, that's good, and that's right. But there's a difference. The Pharisees knew that too. The Pharisees knew how to put on sackcloth and ashes and show themselves to be something. There's a difference, though, between what's out here and what's in here. And what we need, because so often our resistance before God is in here. Really, this is where it all starts. We need to be humble before God in here. And that would be the fuel that fuels faith, fuels dependence 
rather than resistance. So for this, we need God's Spirit to be at work in us because I can't just make myself be something else in my heart. What, what I must be, what I must be is humble. Humility is what's required if I would see the Lord and would enjoy the life that He gives and not resist Him. Humility is, is the path that leads me back around to no resistance. But I have to be given that because I can't make myself such. This is the work of God the Spirit in us. And he will use things like the very last sentence. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the sweetest thing. And I suppose this shows up in lots of other places and in, in lots of other sermons and this could be a sermon in and of itself. Think about how God the Spirit would use that last half dozen words there. What's going on when I resist? What's going on from the Garden of Eden forward? God's out to rip you off. And I know what's best, and I know how to get it, and I'm upset with him, or I'm afraid of him, or I just don't want what I think he would give to me. And on the opposite side of that stands a God who says, Look. And by his spirit, if he would move by his spirit, will not just speak words, but will press words into our hearts and cause us to believe them, to hear them with faith. Look, I'm the God who is the giver of life, and I will do you good. I will exalt in due time. Humble yourself under my hand, and in due time, I will lift you up. I promise it, I promise it, I promise it. I give grace to the humble. And you can't get it anywhere else any other way. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. I will, I will, I will. He's got a heart that's big for people who are hurting and who in humility come and say, help. Okay. And he opposes those who say, I know best. May the Spirit of God convince you the truth of will be exalted. The God who is, this Jesus, has no interest in ripping you off. With Christ, he will give you everything. We'll exalt you. But because God's primary concern is his own glory, bless God, because God's primary concern is his own glory, he will not lift us up in a way that tears him down. He will not exalt the resistant. He will only exalt the dependent, the one who says, I need you. I look to you. I trust you. Yes. There is great hope in this. There is great hope in this. God, we need your help. God will give it. And he will give it by persuading you that here is the one. I, I, I step into human time. I step into history. God became man. God humbled himself and was shamed anyway. That he then would be exalted to claim you and do the same for you.
trust him, trust him, trust him. This is the God who says, cast all your anxieties on me, I care for you. This is the God who says, I give grace to the humble. This is the God who says, I will exalt the one who humbles himself or herself. This is the God who you can trust. And in a position of humility, in a position beneath him, that's the spot where resistance fades and faith grows. Faith, moment by moment by moment. Cast all your anxieties on him. He cares for you. This is the God who reigns, the king who gives life and will exalt those who humble themselves beneath him. Let me pray. Father, you are good, and you are wise, and you know all that I missed, and all that people needed to hear and I didn't say, so fill in the blanks, please. Minister to individuals here who in irrational resistance hold you at arm's length but need a touch from you. Minister to them, please, Spirit of God. Press into them the truths of your promises the hope that is in Christ, the goodness. Press that in. Show us your wide and long and high and deep love for us. Press that in. And grow us up as humble children. Grow us up beneath your hand. Give us a taste, and increasingly so, give us tastes of the life that is coming in fullness one day. Lord, we look to you for this and pray for you. Father, please build your church and honor the Son. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.